Welcome to Discover Indie Film. I'm your host, Jeff Howard. I'm very excited because I have someone here who was at the Sherman Oaks Film Festival just last year, which right now it's still February, so it was like three months ago I met you. Yep. We have Tatiana Blackington James. Hey. I am so happy to be here with you, Jeff. I absolutely loved the festival and your love of film is so infectious and inspiring and I wish every festival director were like you. All right, that's wonderful. I'm going to use that quote somewhere. <laughs> but but I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I appreciate filmmakers like yourself who like you showed a lot of enthusiasm like you know sometimes there's oh I shouldn't say anything. All the filmmakers are wonderful who come to the festival. But you can always I can always tell like the people who are a little more enthusiastic and come to the mixers, attend an extra screening or two, stuff like that. It's like, there's people who love movies and there's people who make movies because they want to be a household name, you know? Right. I like the artist types. I'm a Me little too. biased. Well, your film was Homologies. I don't know if I named it yet, but I am going to name that it won the Audience Award for Best Short Film Drama and it won the Programmer's Prize for Exceptional Filmmaking. So, double award winner golf clap for you and 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 i also am aware that i think you've had a fantastic festival run because i've been aware of of the homology social media for the last you know couple months we have had a good run uh it's not over yet and um we've just had a great response i think when people uh respond to this film they love it and um i think Parents, especially, uh, it resonates with them. It's different, as they say. Um, so, yeah, we've been really pleased at the uh, the response we've we've gotten. Yeah, and, and we'll dive into it more when we get to it because I'm just going to get like your creative history. But I'll add that sure, absolutely, like because it's it's I'm right. I mean, it's submitted as drama to our festival, but it's also sci-fi, right? It and, is soft sci-fi. Right, soft sci-fi, which would make the nerds happier that we call it soft sci-fi instead of our. But it's the kind of sci-fi where it just, you know, and encases a bunch of analogies to our time, but it's set in a technological future. And it's just really, I'm sure that's a big reason that people respond to it. It's just, it's original and it's thought-provoking. Well, I think that during the pandemic, when we were all prisoners of technology, you know, we were sort of in, in Zoom jail, um, it, that anxiety began. I mean, people have always been anxious about technology. They were freaked out by the invention of radio, and they thought it was going to ruin society. Um, and then we started confronting AI. Um, and in each case... Uh, except for, well, with very few exceptions, like, say, uh, a weapon that can blind the enemy, you know, that has absolutely no um, upside. It has no, no positive use. But with almost every other technology, there's a, there are good things you can do with it. It can be used for good or evil. And that only depends on human nature and our own values and our own morality. And so 
I think what people are afraid of is human behavior, really, more than the technology, because someone has to use the technology. And um, in the case of uh, CRISPR technology, which is the one that I'm focusing yeah, on yeah, in the gene film. Gene splicing, right? Gene splicing. Um, it, well, it's, yes. Um, it's less science fiction than people realize, I think, um, because the, the technology to alter our genome uh, exists right now. And there is a biohacker in Northern California who will mail you a kit if you want. And with very little money, you can set up a home lab and you can alter your dog's DNA, alter your own DNA. Um, it's, it's out there. Yeah. And you, wow. And it's not, wow. Well, that's, that's, okay. Let's dive into that when we get to homologies, <laughs> but I want to go back in time, uh, to the question I've already warned you I was going to ask, which is, you know, you're clearly a creative person and, and, a and a dedicated, dedicated to the arts and, and specifically, well, I should, I guess I should mention that, that you were the, the writer and the producer of homologies. Yes. And I love writers. What can I say? Like, it's always fun to get someone who wrote the work and then turn to a, a director to direct it. Like, I, I, I always, whatever. I, I think it says something. Like, uh, I think it says, you know, that someone cares about, well, whatever. I'll, I'll shut up. I'll stop sharing my opinion of why I think writers are so cool and no, just no, ask you. Tell, yeah, say right. More. <laughs> well, right. Because writers, you know, it's so easy for like people to go on and on about director, director, director. But, you know, a funny thing is like, I think one of the, one of the big flaws, it's a bad thing for a festival programmer to say, but like too many films are written and directed by the same person. And they're either a really good director and a weaker writer or a really great writer and a weaker director. And, and I'm sure you see that all the time when you're sitting watching homologies in a block of shorts and going, Oh man, that was a great idea. If only the director had been a little better. And then it's the same name for both, you know? I don't know if it happens to you. It happens to me. Well, I do uh, feel that we are still kind of recovering from auteur theory, where people thought the director just did everything. And he was like a painter, and the film was his painting. And I'm saying his because it was usually men. Um, and... You know, people do, I think, need to be educated that actors don't improvise their lines um, and uh, films don't exist without a script. Um, so I am a little bit, I wouldn't say militant about it, but I'm, uh, I'm kind of a stickler. And sometimes it's hard for writers to um, speak up. Uh, and say, you know, maybe maybe put my name in the credits, too, um, when you are listing the film, not just the director. Because there is no such thing as a film by. It, it, it just doesn't exist. It's a collaboration. Um, so when I go to a festival where the writer is valued, believe you me, we feel the difference. 
Right. And, and <laughs> which means you feel the difference when the writer isn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. I've been told um, only the director can come to this panel. Um, only the director can be on camera on Zoom if there's a like an industry panel meeting. Um, I've, I've literally been told erase your name from from the Zoom and just type guest. Um, and I don't think they mean it to be insulting, um, but it does kind of make you feel devalued. It does. And I mean, I could, I assume their reasoning is that like, it could be mission creep where like, well, if we had the writer, then we got to set letting every producer join in. Like, but like you said, there's nothing without the script. There's nothing without what was on the page. And obviously most directors will say that too. Yes. And, and mine would as well. And, and my director also writes and she's also an actor. So she knows perfectly well, she didn't, you know, just wake up one day and, and make a film. No one ever has. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. That's the funny thing too. Yeah. There's those scripts that the scripts that spent five to 10 years or longer being made wonderful. And, you know, sometimes Everyone else gets involved for a year. <laughs> but yeah, they're all writing. They're all at the top of a mountain that was that was pushed out of the ground by someone else. That's a really crappy analogy. But anyway, when did you when did you get hit by the creative bug? Well, I think I was always creative. I think I was always an artist. Um, when I was young, I was very serious about dance. I was a ballet dancer. And I thought that's what I was going to do. I wasn't going to go to college. I was just going to go straight into a company. And then um, speaking of DNA, my DNA had other ideas because I inherited my dad's terrible knees and they gave out and I was in pain all the time and um, limped along literally for uh, about a year or two. And then said, I don't think I can take it. You know, I, I don't think I can wake up every day and and swallow 600 milligrams of Advil to... Advil to and icing every night. No, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I had to find something else to do. And ballet is so all-consuming that I didn't really have a lot of other interests. And <clears throat> I ended up applying to college kind of at the last minute. And I went to NYU because... As a dancer, I, I would go to New York every summer uh, to train. And so I knew New York. I love New York. And um, and I thought, you know, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm interested in. And I need to find something that excites me the way that dance excited me. And the only thing I could really think of that excited me was I wanted to go to Paris. <laughs> Which is valid. Totally and valid. The reason I wanted to go to Paris was that I had seen the movie Diva by Jean-Jacques Benex. And I thought that's what Paris was like. Um, and so I thought, well, I guess I'll major in French. And I did that. And uh, then I, I discovered I kind of had a knack for languages and I, I enjoyed learning them. And so then I did a double major, French and Russian. And I did end up in France. And, um, and then much later in life, 
I actually met Jean-Jacques Benex, who wrote and directed Diva, and he became a, a mentor to me. But um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So while I was in Paris, I, I got a little homesick, and um, I would write these long letters home. And then some of the letters got a little bit too weird uh, and meandering to send, and so I would keep them. And then they kind of turned into something else, you know, sort of journal. And I thought, well, I, I really do like writing. And looking back, um, it, like all the, all the signs were there when I was a kid. I remember I had a, a, a book that had belonged to my mother, and it was called The Talkies, you know, as opposed to The Silent Films. <laughs> and I would just pour over this book for hours as a little girl. And it had... Um, some like glamour headshots of of famous actresses from the '40s and stuff, and like Hedy Lamarr, and um, and I would cut them out and put them on my walls. And like all my friends thought I was really weird. They would come over to play and be like, "Why do you have these old ladies on your walls?" But and that's I actually like, super cool. Old lady, that's Rita Hayworth. <laughs> She's a movie star, and she was also and, pretty damn glamorous, right? Um, I mean, just because you weren't cutting up 17, I guess it was like that was your 17 magazine in a way. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I liked 17 magazine too. But, um, and and I was, you know, kind of like a latchkey kid. My mother worked. And um, and so I, I watched a lot of TV and a lot of old movies on TV. Um, and, and you grew up here? I grew up in Washington, D.C. D.C., okay. My parents were both professors. And, um, and so I, anyway, when I was in college, I just thought, you know, I think I want to write and majoring in languages, you read a lot of literature. Um, so that was actually pretty good preparation. And I, when I graduated from college, I got a job working for a newspaper service and I was the only one who liked to write, um, book reviews. So I had a little expense account and I would, I would take authors to lunch, you know, when I liked a review copy of their book. And after about a year of that, I thought, I don't want to interview them. I want to be them. This is what I want to do full time. And I applied to grad school, got into USC, came out here and Still not really with an intention of being a screenwriter. But right. So, so you did a, a literature program, a uh, master's in lit well, or it, creative it writing? Well, a, a writing program that doesn't exist anymore. It had some cinema classes, but not only. You know, it had, you could be a novelist, you could write nonfiction. Um, they had this really wonderful, eclectic faculty, um, including, you know, some famous screenwriters who were, who were not in the cinema school. But um, I I got the bug, and actually I I got stuck on a novel I was writing, and I decided to write a script because I thought it was easy. <laughs> well, the fool. The, yeah, um, but the funny thing is, like a novel, right? You don't know how long it's supposed. You know what I mean? Like like it's more open ended. Whereas when you write a script, you're like, okay, I'm supposed to write like. 
100, 120 pages, and then I stop. You know what I mean? Like, I could that see. That was I could, exactly my train of thought. Like, I get to stop at 120. Back then, 120 was acceptable. It's not anymore. But um, True. Back then, well, when I was young, 120 was required. If it was under 120, they're like, well, then you're not a real writer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I wrote not really what I knew, but what I had studied. I wrote this script on the, um, on the French revolution. And it was, it was the story of a, um, uh, an actual person. She had been kind of a lady in waiting for Marie Antoinette, um, and her, her servant, girl and they're close in age and they're you know it would be stretched to say that they're friends but in um you know in today's world they would be friends and um you know the the shit hits the fan and <laughs> their fortunes reverse and the you know the servant girl goes goes up the social ladder and um the and then it's the running for her life. Goes down, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's actually based on a, a memoir. In French, it's called uh, Journal d'une femme de 50 ans, which is Diary of a 50-Year-Old Woman. And she wrote her memoirs when she was, um, you know, she had fled France. And she was living in Albany, New York. Um, and the, the South African writer, Sheila Kohler, turned it into a novel after I turned it into a script. But um, anyway, that was my first script. and um, Sounds I, pretty ambitious, by the way, for a first screenplay. To... Well, see, this is my problem. <laughs> I can never do anything small. Um, that's why I was so proud of making a short film, just because it was small and contained. I mean, it was very contained. It was in one room. Um, and I... I for so long, just couldn't do that. I had to go big. And, um, but anyway, I wrote this thing and I didn't know if it was any good at all. I didn't know screenwriting rules. I hadn't read any books. And so I thought, well, I'll just try to make every scene interesting. And I got an agent, uh, while I was still in grad school with that script. And I started working and saw the, well, you know, no, very few people get rich as screenwriters. Um, the The paychecks are pretty good compared to what a novelist would make. So, for sure. And when you say when you were working, was that like taking writing assignments? Did Did that script get you? You know, like, I never gigs, or was it all like spec luck. stuff? I never had a lot of luck with writing assignments. Um, there were some that I ah, I could have killed for. And I didn't get, um, but I mostly sold spec material and I, uh, the, the next thing I did was I, um, I read this article in the New York times and it was, um, it was about these love letters that Einstein had written to a Russian woman, uh, who was married she was married to a famous sculptor named Sergei Konyonkov. And he was so famous that his house in Moscow had been turned into a museum. 
And he coincidentally had sculpted the bust of Einstein that sits at Princeton University. And they had, anyway, they'd found these love letters in his attic, along with some other uh, items, a watch that he had inscribed to Kanyanka's wife, Margarita, and, um, and these love letters were going up for sale. And so I started digging into the story, and it, it turns out, I think the evidence is pretty clear, that um, this woman was a spy. So I, she was KGB or whatever, uh, uh, a Russian spy. I think she was a reluctant spy. Right. I don't think she was a career spy. Um, but she had, you know, her, her family had suffered a lot under, um, under the Soviet system. Her first husband had been murdered. Uh, you know, executed for being an intellectual, basically. Um, and she and Kanyankov emigrated, and they lived in New York. But she had family back home. And um, generally, what the Soviets did was, you know, they would say, it's not going to go so well for your brother if you don't do what we ask. And um, during so during World War II, um, she worked at this place. I think it was called like, uh, you know, because the Russians were our allies. It was like Russian war relief, um, and it was kind of a kind of a front, I think. And um, then she and Kanyonkov met. Einstein, because he was commissioned to do this bust, and I think she was tasked with asking him a lot of questions about the Manhattan Project, which, um, of course, the Russians didn't know that's what it was called, but they knew it existed, and they assumed that Einstein, who was the world's foremost physicist, would be the head of it. And he should have been the head of it. And the reason he wasn't the head of it was that um, he was a Zionist and the FBI blocked him. And that's how Oppenheimer became the head of the Manhattan Project. Um, But the Soviets didn't know any of that. So I think she spied on him and seduced him. And I mean, it's clear from the love letters that they they were involved. Um, But I think it, it ended up being a genuine love affair. Um, her, her husband was quite an odd guy. He was much older. Um, he was very religious. He, uh, was like this fanatical animal lover. They had all these animals in their apartments. He seemed like a real sweetheart, but, um, he was more of a father figure. And, um, then, you know, after a certain point, I think she probably wasn't delivering. And they kind of got, you know, summoned back home. And they lived a life of privilege as much as you could, you know, in in the former Soviet Union. Because he was very, Konyankov was this very celebrated sculptor, but um, 
but I think she probably missed New York. Anyway. Um, no, how could you not? <laughs> <laughs> rubbing, rubbing elbows with some of the most famous. I mean, I believe there was a time when Einstein was the most famous person on earth. There was a time yeah. when, when being the most brilliant person actually meant something <laughs> instead of, uh, I guess I'm criticizing celebrity culture now, but. No, you are so right. You are so right. I mean, Einstein was part of celebrity culture, but he w- he was celebrated for his brilliance. And we don't, just don't see that today. I mean, it's just the truth. Yeah. If your brilliance doesn't lead to massive wealth, we don't care anymore. Exactly. As a society, yeah. which is a bummer. Because, yeah, Einstein didn't get rich off his mind. Right. Princeton professor, right? <laughs> and, but, and whatever the hopefully the government slipped. The, by the way, that's the most. So you wrote a script on that story. So I wrote a script on the, well, which I, I which actually, I swear to God that that's like that's like an Oscar movie. That's that sounds so good. That's such an amazing story. Well, thank you. I um I didn't even write the script. I just I took the article to HBO and I pitched it and they bought it. And I wrote the script and. Um, my executive was pretty happy with it. And then regime change. <laughs> you know how it goes. All, uh, the, old, all the old persons. It's all timing. Projects. It's yeah. all timing. Whoever, yeah, if something was someone's passion project, then the new regime, whoever takes the the reins, has to say, nope, everything's got to be, I brought it up. Because I yeah. can't afford to have the old regime have some have some home runs. Motherfucker, that sucks. <laughs> um, part of the, I mean, occupational hazard, right? And then I, you know, I kind of continued uh, writing period, mostly period historical drama, female lead, because the spy was my lead. It wasn't Einstein, because um, I'm not smart enough to make Einstein my lead. <laughs> um, and And I like, you know female leads because I understand them best and um, we don't have enough of them. I wrote another script on Matahari that I sold to Universal. Uh, also didn't get made. Um, it's, it's a tough story to crack Matahari. Um, so many, so many people have tried. There's one kind of campy Matahari starring Marlena Dietrich. But since then... Like, really nothing. It's interesting. Yeah. Probably a little bit of cultural prejudice, right? That. Well, anyway. <laughs> right, because... Actually, I don't know Matahari's story, but... Well, most people don't know what nationality she was. Yeah. Um, she was, in fact, Dutch. And she... Um, she had this father who was kind of a kind of a gambler and a, a deadbeat dad and so she was like you know living with a single mom and they were destitute because the, the father had abandoned them and so she answered a personal ad and met this guy who was going to, he was like an officer in the colonial army and he went to, he went to Malaysia to, you know, rule over, 
rule over the population. And brought her, they married, and he brought her there. And um, as soon as the first monsoon hit, she realized he was a terrible alcoholic and uh, a wife beater. And the the locals hated him. And they hated him so much, they ended up poisoning their two children that they had. Uh, and that the son died, the daughter survived. And she said, all right, I got I to gotta get away from this guy. And so she left him and with her daughter and was destitute again. And finally he said, look, uh, you know, you can't let, can't let the little girl starve. And she said, okay, I'm going to give her to you for a while uh, until I get on my feet. And she packed up all of her beautiful clothes and saris that she, you know, had from Malaysia. And she took a train to Paris and she reinvented herself as this exotic dancer. And she became, you know, the most famous courtesan in Paris. Um, but then World War I hit and it was complicated trying to get her daughter back. And that's when she became a spy. You have this amazing niche. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll add, your, how funny that I, I loved your film. And there's actually none of this historical stuff in it, but it clearly you have a love of historical figures in history. I'm, I'm like one of those nerds who'll read a history book, like over the holidays when I take a break. Like, like I, just, I just love history. I can't get, hated it in school, love it now. For that the last is so twenty years, common. I think I know it's true of my son, because the way they taught history was very traditional. You had to memorize a bunch of dates, um, which who connects emotionally with dates, right? Um, and and it's not a narrative. It doesn't feel relevant. I always wonder, like, what if you tried to teach history backwards? What if you like took a current event like the war in the Middle East and you said, well, why, why are they fighting each other? And um, how long have they been here? And yeah. why, do, why do Israelis speak Hebrew? And um, what is Palestine? And then you just like went backwards. Then I think it would be more like a process of discovery, like a, you know, like unraveling a mystery. Yeah, and you'd start by seeing how it affects right now. Instead yeah. of being old stuff that you think doesn't matter, which of course it all does once you learn it properly. Right. <laughs> once you actually I think I really developed my love of history when I started traveling more in my thirties, I think. I happen to have had the good and bad fortune of a first marriage. But it was with a travel agent, a Hollywood travel agent. So we tra I saw the world. And every time I was in a country, I would read, it's a shortcut, but I'd read the Wikipedia entry of whatever city we're in and start to get fascinated with the history and, and see how it connected to like what was going on right now. And I just became a history junkie. Yeah. Well, that happened to my son, too, when he got to college. Um, 
you know, it's sort of, he was into politics always, and it clicked, like, oh, history and politics, they're really more connected than I thought. And um, he took this class on the Cold War from this very charismatic professor, and I guess it was recent enough that it, you know, he, he just caught the bug, and he ended up taking every class this professor taught, and just goes to show you, like, if someone... Presents thing and presents things in a compelling way, um, you know. Any anyone can learn it and learn to love it. And I'm gonna get it back to you. You actually have a you you are you are very far from being a narcissist <laughs> <laughs> because because you're always talking about the projects and the stories and not yourself. But talking about yourself, you so you were writing a lot of. Historically based stuff, uh, yes. screenplays, and and Lord knows, like that's that's I mean, you know, just Oppenheimer. You can't every year the films that are most respected very often are historical in nature. So that was a very cool. I, I guess I'm saying you you found a very cool niche, and you didn't do it out of commercial reasons, right? You did it because that was your your area of interest. Yeah, I mean, I I think if I tried to quote sell out, um, I I just wouldn't write anything very compelling, and nobody would buy it. Um, it's it's hard to fake the passion. And you have a natural passion. It sounds like for women who have historically important women whose stories are underrepresented. Is that Fair, fair assumption. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, and um, yes, and I am. I'm interested in what I call the intersection of the personal and the political. I think that comes from growing up in D.C. with two kind of lefty activist professor parents, and my parents were very close to their students and would have them over the house and. The students were protesting things all the time, and my dad was a law professor, so sometimes he would go and bail them out of jail. <laughs> and, um, I lived on this super interesting street, which I would like to do a documentary about. Um, my next-door neighbor from childhood and I want to make this documentary. We grew up in this street called Myrtle Street in an area of D.C. called Shepherd's, Shepherd Park. And I didn't know until, I think, last year that it it had been a plantation at one time. But now it's within the district. And, um, and it became a neighborhood, I don't know how much by planning and how much just, um, you know, de facto, it became this neighborhood that was um, welcoming, that would sell uh, houses to middle-class black people. And also to white Jews who were excluded from other places. And my dad, um, who was a white Jew, taught at Howard, which is an all-black university. And so this seemed like kind of the perfect neighborhood for him. And um, he, he bought a house on this street that was kind of like a checkerboard, you know, white family, black family, white family, black family. And so I grew up... Um, kind of thinking that was normal. And my playmates, uh, when I was a kid were 
mostly black. And um, this street produced some of the most accomplished people. For example, on the other side of my neighbor, Nikki Weber, um, was the uh, future screenwriter of uh, Rustin. Down the street from him was Susan Rice, who was national security advisor. Across the street from me was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he didn't grow up there, but he had moved there because he was playing for the Bullets. Yeah, that's what the team was called then. (laughs) It was called the Bullets, yes. (laughs) No, I I still can't get used to the Wizards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And... He, was he Kareem Abdul-Jabbar he, or still Lou Alcindor? He was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Okay, yeah. And he had paid um, for, this, for this particular sect of uh, Islam that he belonged to. He had, he had paid for them to have a mosque a few blocks away. And when I tell people this story, they don't believe it, but it happened. Um, the, the imam of this mosque had beef with some other imam and the guys from the other mosque came and murdered his family and um, they, they were arrested but they weren't I guess you know ju- the wheels of justice were grinding too slowly for this guy and I think he kind of lost his mind a little bit and he and some of his followers uh, took over three buildings. Two of them were government buildings, and one was a benign brith. And there was like this three-day siege where they were <laughs> holding these buildings hostage. And it ended uh, peacefully, I think. I was really little at the time, but um, I was old enough to be reading Harriet the Spy. And the FBI was camped outside our house, I mean, literally right in front of my house for weeks and weeks um, because, you know, Kareem had funded this mosque. And so to me, like, politics and, and everyday life were so intertwined. Um, I, I think that must have influenced what I like to write about. For sure. And multiculturalism, because I don't have the data and facts, but I think we all know for a fact that blended neighborhoods are rare. Yeah. All over the world, they're rare. I grew up in a fairly blended part of Los Angeles because Los Angeles is a new enough city to not have like a street where everyone on one side, you know, like. It always shocked me when I ended up in other cities like New Orleans or Detroit. And it's like there's a line and all the black people are on one side and all the white people are on the other side. And there's a highway in between and you just don't cross. Yeah. Like we don't have that here. But but to, to grow up in a city, in a, in a neighborhood that's blended is, is unique and special. And honestly, most of D.C. is very segregated. Um, but this this neighborhood wasn't. And isn't, I don't think. Right. Because because the Jews and blacks were both dissed. <laughs> <laughs> I say that as someone who grew up culturally Jewish. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> I'm allowed to say things about Jews. That's all yes, I'm saying. Yes, you are. Um, 
Yeah, so I don't know. I have wondered, like, was that some special sauce that made all these people so uh, interesting and successful? I mean, Kareem already was, but for those of us that were kids then... um, Well, I think it's totally special sauce. I think being exposed to other cultures and, and brilliant people, it just has to, it sharpens the mind and makes you more aware of possibilities, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think keeps you open. It keeps you from getting intellectually lazy. There's nothing lazier than like, oh, this is really biased, but I can be biased. There's nothing lazier Then being like, everyone looks like me, everyone believes what I believe, everyone has the same God, and anyone who doesn't agree with us is evil and wrong and should be stamped out. Like, that's just, how much further can your brain go from that? Like, and that counts for everybody. I can be all sidesy on that one. Like, yeah, I grew up with some Jewish people who only have Jewish friends, and I'm like, dude, you're so limited. (laughs) Yeah. Um. I mean, I think the job of a writer is to understand um, every character's motivation and perspective on the world. And to do that, uh, you just, you can't be too judgmental. I mean, you can say this character behaved in an immoral way or an evil way or a selfish way, but you have to understand why. Why, why did they end up in that place? Why, why were they um, pushed to that behavior? Not, not to excuse it, but how did they get there? Yeah, yeah. Not to judge them, but to get inside their mind and tell the story. Yeah. Excellent. It's funny. I would be tempted to ask you a bunch of like professional writer type questions, but I think we should just move on with your story. <laughs> but it's funny because... I say that because I have a lot of people who say, you know, you need panels at the festivals too, where people can like talk to writers. And the, the, the amazing thing is like, you've done what most people I meet haven't, which is you've gone into a room and pitched something and succeeded. Like that's actually a big deal. I think. Well, it's, it's not easy. I've pitched things and not succeeded of course too. Um, but I, I just think, you know, if you are excited about something and, and you say like, I can't believe I get to tell this story, um, people feel that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause your, your enthusiasm shows that, yeah, it's, it's inspiring. Excellent. All right. So, so you're doing this and, and you're, uh. You're pitching things, and every once in a while, you you sit down and you have to write the whole thing. I assume. And yeah, and I I mean I don't want it to sound all all rosy and like it was so easy because, um, you know, all that good period drama with female leads, none of that ever got made. <laughs> it, it helped pay my rent, and I'm really grateful for that. But um, the the first movie I got made was a contemporary crime drama set in Brooklyn with a male lead. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of that film, and I had a wonderful experience doing it. But um, I think every writer is frustrated um, that when their scripts get read by 
20 people only. And even, even if it pays the bills after a while, it's, it's just soul crushing to know what might've been, you know, but movies are expensive. They can't all get made. For sure. Well, who knows? Hopefully all your old female driven scripts, hopefully they can come out of the, out of the drawer someday because finally we might be turning the corner. Amusingly, I knew a cinematographer whose wife got her master's in history and was going, was on the track to be a history professor and then ended up writing like five to 10 historical scripts for like big shots, like Oliver Stone and other people. But it was always like Alexander the Great, this person. And it was always like a male figure in history. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here, I am paying attention to what you're saying, but I'm also thinking to myself, can I even think of a historical biopic that focused on a female lead? Yeah, there aren't many. I don't know if I can name Joan of Arc, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, that kind of came and went, though. It wasn't like, you know, whereas even, you know, whatever. I, all, all these other films, different. But that's because all the decision makers in Hollywood were men, and they thought men are really interesting. <laughs> Do people really want a story about Matahari? The answer is yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah, I mean, it has everything. Spies, sex. Right. Well, anyhow, so so the the film, the feature that got made about uh, the person in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, also based on a novel written by a friend of mine, Tim McLaughlin. It's called The Narrows. And um, I mean, to be honest, the reason I like to take from history and adapt novels is because I'm terrified of the blank page. <laughs> I have, you know, I have written original stories, as you know, because you picked one for your film festival. But, um, gosh, it's so much more comforting to start with something already there that you can build on. Um, and, yeah, like I said, a crime drama set in, set in Brooklyn. We filmed it in New York. And um, wonderful director, Francois Vell, I still work with, stars Vincent D'Onofrio, Kevin Zeger, Sophia Bush. And, um, I mean, I think I remember it coming out. The the name, I know the name. I can't, I didn't see it, I don't think. Made it for very little money. Not as little as my short, but um, proud of the way it looks, given our budget. And that, uh, and that was the first thing that hit the screen? Yes. Is what you're saying? Yes. And so that was like, was that a wonderful turning point for you? Like to actually see it up there? Yeah, it's kind of surreal. Um, it's it's not all um, a wonderful feeling. It's like it kind of makes you queasy too, because it's it's overwhelming, really. Sort of like listening to your own voice on recording, <laughs> which I don't recommend for anyone. It doesn't sound yeah. It doesn't sound like us. But but you 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 saw it so that just did that feed the uh, feed the drive to just keep moving forward or what is there something in between I, I actually don't know the timeline yet so how far are we away from so uh, from that, like making shorts that came out a long time ago and I had 
young children at the time. And the business was not that friendly to um, female stories, female writers, like we're discussing. And I... I did have a wonderful experience making the Narrows, and I thought, I know enough about the business to know this is so unlikely to happen again anytime soon. (laughs) And I was in this, I was in this routine where I would, you know, have a general meeting in Burbank, and I live in Santa Monica, And that would kind of take up my whole day once I prepared for it and drove there and then, like, had some lunch and then drove back. And then it was time to pick up the kids. And that wasn't really... It didn't really feel like writing to me. It felt like pretending to be a writer. Um, And so I, I dropped out of the business for a few years. And... um. It enabled me to be a lot more present for my kids. And I wrote fiction and I wrote other things. My husband um, owns a newspaper, so I still I still write feature stories sometimes. Um, but, of course, I missed it. And so uh, my kids are older now. They're adults. And I uh, am so encouraged by the change in the industry, by just the quality on television, which when I started out, I was not interested in television at all because there was very little I was excited to watch. Um, Now, most of what I'm excited to watch is on television and not in the movie theater. And now, I, I mean... I'm going to fully acknowledge this is a tough year and everybody I know, their mantra is survive till 25 um, because the industry is contracting and... Right, the post-strike world. The post-strike world and all that. Um, Were you out there picketing? I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is... I've had uh, a lot of friends were, were like, it's wonderful to be there and be around the other people and the other writers. And then of course the actors showed up too (laughs) after a little while, but, but yeah, it wasn't working. It wasn't staying busy and creating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I, in the long term, the stock market always goes up right in, in the long term. I think the movie business survives, um, it, it or the or TV or like whatever, um, whatever type of content. I know people hate the word content, but um, the stories on screen are not going away. And yes, it's harder now, but gosh, it's always kind of been hard, hasn't it's it? Always been hard. <laughs> well, it's funny because you can never write. You can never. It's just the golden age, blah blah blah. But I mean, there was. Just 15, 20 years ago, there was like five places to sell a script total. Yeah. Like in a way. And now, yeah, it's no one has any idea <laughs> what's going on anymore. But now there are, besides all the cable outlets and all the streamers, 
there actually are still a couple TV networks, I guess, out there. I don't know. I, when I always make fun of a, whenever a friend says, oh, I'm watching such and such on CBS. I'm like, haven't heard of it. What's what's that? What's network TV? Yeah, but, guilty. <laughs> yeah, me too. I just, I just lost all interest in what they do. People say, oh, you got to watch such. I'm like, I don't, I don't really have to watch that. Because like you said, it's sort of a golden era. Yeah. I mean, it's been years since I've watched anything with a laugh track, right? Do they still have those? I don't know. I don't know. But but it's been years. It actually so almost been years since I've watched something. I think Breaking Bad and like some of the stuff that was on AMC or or whatever had set time limits, right? But like now, like with streaming and all that, like every episode can be as long as it needs to be, right? Like in a series, which is totally revolutionary in a way because it used to be like. 22 minutes per half hour with commercial breaks, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's what we grew up on. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if it comes back because now the model is shifting back to ads, right? Even on streamers. Even on streamers. You get to pay for the service and then you get ads or you could, like, pay more to not have ads. Yeah, like, I think Amazon's just putting the ads up front. And they're not breaking in like Tubi and other places, but uh-huh. but yeah, yeah, it is interesting. It'd be interesting if they reinforce the old rules, but it is. But it's absolutely like there was an era, and I guess we're we both grew up in that era where the quality of television was pretty fucking low. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 yeah, now, I mean, there's just it's just I know I wish we had a better word than content. Because like you said, it's it's filmed entertainment, it is whatever it is. It's all it's all just moving pictures and the the, the delivery, the quality of of something on I mean, I just watched something. I just finished binging a five year old show, but whatever, of Too Old to Die Young by the guy who directed Drive. But I mean it was just every episode was a movie. Mm-hmm. They're like seventy five to ninety five minutes. And it was like a movie in 10 parts. And I was like, this is just, this is just amazing. Like this wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, we're telling stories kind of like Dickens told stories again. Just it's, you know, it's called a series. That's all. Um, And I mean, you really get into character that way. Um, in a way that you can't in in film. Yeah, you can't, right? Yeah, yeah. In a series, the people on screen become really important to us. But in a two hour, even a two hour film or ninety minute film, you know, their job is just to like be moderately identifiable, and then the story takes over. Yeah, yeah. And the visuals. But so you're interested in writing, uh, writing. Series two, it sounds like. I am. I'm developing a series right now um, on Ana East Nin, and also also based on IP. I love my IP. Um, it's based on a memoir called Apprentice to Venus, and it's about um, the tumultuous relationship between Ana East Nin and her young assistant, much younger assistant. And it's told from the point of view, it's a two-hander, but it's told from the point of view 
of um, of the apprentice, Tristine, and they they meet sort of by chance, and she gets swept up into this very glamorous, um, sexy underground writer world of Anis Nint, and uh, she thinks it's you know her dream come true. Until she realizes that uh, her main job as an apprentice is not going to be answering letters or typing up manuscripts. It's going to be protecting Anais's biggest secret, which is that she was a bigamist. She had two husbands at once, one in, in New York and one in L.A. And she did not want them to find out about each other. And she did not want the world to know that she was a bigamist, obviously, because... I mean, back then it was punishable by... You could go to jail for 10 years. Um, so they um, they don't have this is such a hard time un- until Anais publishes her diary, which is a worldwide bestseller, and she becomes one of the most famous writers in the world. And then it gets very difficult to keep the secret. And... I'm not wrong, right? She was really known for sexual liberation, right? And yes. being openly sexual. Yes. She was um, really the the patron saint. Oh, it's funny to say saint because she was such a nymphomaniac. But she was, let's say, the, um, you know, the darling of a certain type of second wave feminist. Um, today we would call her sex positive. Um, but she, she was also called a soft feminist because, you know, she was not a man hater. She loved men <laughs> and she didn't mind pleasing men sexually because she very much wanted to be pleased sexually. Um, and that turned off it's a, a certain type of feminist that, um, was suspicious of her, thought she was kind of a geisha, um, but I would say they, they were in the minority. And the, you know, the idea that a woman's diary, in other words, her inner thoughts and observations about relationships, and she's very into psychoanalysis, so she believed that um, if, if you understood yourself, if you did interior work, then... That was the key to eliminating war and um, social change, you know, for the better. Basically, utopia, if everyone could just be analyzed enough. Um, And the idea that a a woman could publish her diary then was absolutely revolutionary. I mean, men had been publishing their diaries for years, right? Samuel Pepys and, you know, whoever all these great English writers would, would publish their diaries. But a woman, never, never. That was a joke. What are you going to write about? Recipes, you know, how you curled your hair. like. And so the fact that this was taken seriously and considered literary, which it was, um, it's it's hard to overstate what that meant to young women then. I bet. I bet in historical context, it was massive. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I, I'm going to shift subjects just because I think I screwed up and let you skip over homologies. 
by asking, <laughs> uh, asking, but I asked if you were working on, if, when I asked about interest in series, that's what you're working on now. Yeah. Homologies comes, comes in. Yes. I mean, so, I got to get you to talk about homologies. Homologies would make a great series too. Um, and I thought about how to do it. Uh, should I recap the plot without giving too much away? Totally up to you. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's, it's the story of um, two parents in the near future who have used CRISPR technology to genetically enhance, sort of, you know, make designer babies, basically. And their designer babies are now teenagers, and there are some unintended consequences. And as you know, um, the, the genesis of all this we've talked about it was um my parenting struggles during the pandemic and trying to navigate um raising kids in this competitive environment where it's hard to get into a good college and you know 4.0 isn't good enough and making sure that they have options that's what we always said to our kids we just want you to have options you know um and but it was it's interesting right because co so we have kids are maybe almost the same age ish uh-huh. and and my stepdaughter's 16 and and uh but i've been around for since she was five <laughs> so pretty locked in and like it was to have a a per a not to have someone post adolescence pre adult live during lockdown was just a whole different it was just something that had never happened before yeah it had never happened before we didn't know how to handle it and i felt like every day i was handling it wrong because my son was depressed he didn't want to be on zoom 8 hours a day and he needed to be with his friends and i mean it's a a necessary stage of development human development forging your identity you need to forge your identity at, during the teen years with your group of friends not at home with your parents and in our case 92 year old um grandfather who had dementia so it it's it's like it was like he was trapped in an old folks home <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was huge. I mean, I think our kid referred to it as jail in a way. Like it was, it felt like jail to not be around other kids. Yeah. For a whole year almost. And we would, uh, funny thing is we would try to encourage like, Hey, it's the weekend. Just hang out in the backyard outside with your friend. (laughs) We were were worried because my mom was over 80. So it was like worried about spreading stuff, spreading the COVID, but yeah, it was just, it was, I mean, adolescence is stressful. And then to be an adolescent in the middle of a global pandemic where you're not sure if hundreds of millions are going to die, just can't conceive of what it was like to have a young brain through that. The message they were receiving was, um, you know, if you behave like a normal teenager and kiss a girl or hang out with your friends, 
you will kill your whole family. You, you can kill grandpa, <laughs> right. right? Which, oh my God, I might have even said something stupid like that. Like, you really want to go to a birthday party? Because we're supposed to have dinner with my mom the next day and you might kill her. I don't, I doubt I said that, but we were all thinking it. And yeah, I mean, they got the message all right. And, um, and yet there I was saying, oh, gosh, I understand how awful this is and you're feeling depressed, but you got these five missing calculus assignments. <laughs> you just really have to get you're, you're looking at Schoology or whatever. You're looking, yeah. You're looking at, yeah, so the worst thing about parenting nowadays, too, is you have an app where every teacher updates you about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Those apps drive. Oh, my really. older son did not have that. My younger son did. And my older son always used to say, my God, that would have, like, I would have lost my mind if that had existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, in short, I just felt like a complete hypocrite. And so I wrote the script about parents who... You know, it seems like on one level they're trying to do the best for their kids and give them give them options, give them all the advantages, but is it really for the kids or is it for them? You know, is it like showing off a high-end stereo that you can afford that, you know, you have the children who are the best looking and the best athletes and is it for them or is it for the parents? And back to what we were talking about before, with any technology, it's as good or as bad as the humans who are employing it, right? And with technology like that, there, as you point out, there's always the law of unintended results. Yes, always, always unintended consequences. I mean, and with CRISPR, for example... We have the technology now to get rid of malaria. Well, how would you do that? Well, there are different ways, but you could you could engineer mosquitoes to only have male offspring. So then they would quickly all die out and you'd have no more mosquitoes. Well, that seems okay until you think, well, but there are some things that eat mosquitoes, right? Some birds and other things, fish, tilapia, they eat mosquitoes. Like, what's going to happen to all of them? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, and it's not going to be good because anytime you have a closed ecosystem and you change something, yeah, it's... Uh, but also, as, you, as, as the film points out, you boost a kid's intelligence with CRISPR and, and you go in and you change that genome so that they get quality X, Y, and Z... Well, what happens to the other qualities? Can you just assume they'll be a thoughtful, caring human being? Or have you just made that less likely? Yeah, yeah. And um, certain things seem, if not um, uh, useless or, or even, you know, bad. Like, let's say um, bacterial infections, right? I mean, what good are they? But actually, we wouldn't have CRISPR technology without bacterial infections. Couldn't do it. So... Right, the bacteria is how you get, how you 
alter the DNA it's, essentially. Yeah, it's it's part like of the that's process. part of the delivery. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not sciencey enough to explain it, but there's this this wonderful book by Jennifer Doudna, who who's one of the pioneers of of CRISPR. And uh, the name's going to come to me in a second. Um, but um, she she talks about you know how they developed it, and a lot of it has to do with the <laughs> kind of like the the war of the worlds between viruses and bacteria. Um, and without without that understanding and and you know using some of this bacteria in the lab. You, you couldn't get this you couldn't get there couldn't get to this technology so it just made me think well what else is out there that seems deadly or a nuisance that we might wipe out that could actually lead to something great and I mean human beings are that way right like we're we're a very complex recipe with a lot of ingredients and a lot of qualities are, are both, um, you know, they, they could seem like negatives, but, um, but you never know. There could be like this really positive upside that leads to something great. Um, so, but, you know, we have the ability to, to play God now more than ever. And it is terrifying. And is, is consensus the right way to go about it? I mean, we don't have consensus now. Right. Some, some countries, uh, whatever you, anything goes, whatever you want to do with this technology, it's not illegal. Yeah. And, and, uh, law i'll just use the word law i mean mm-hmm. the the legal in this country the legal system or or uh, regulation societal regulation like i'm actually not an anti-government guy like i do think the government is sort of of the people and has the people's interests but it always lags behind technology like we we didn't know how to properly regulate social media till we we're 10 years into it and we're right. like Oh yeah, you should not be allowed on these apps till you're over sixteen or something. <laughs> like it's very clearly horrible for a young person to have an Instagram account. And and that goes back to um, I just lost my train of thought. But um, I mean, it doesn't help that all these politicians are are so old, right? Um, it does not help that they have not a lot invested in the future. Oh, I know, I know what I was going to say. It. it you know, it goes back to what you were saying when we were talking about Einstein and, you know, people not valuing experts. Um, if they did, you could, you could rely on the people, I suppose, who created this technology to um, influence policy. But at the same time, you know, there are some, that there's not consensus among them. I mean... Most scientists say, oh, we've got to be really careful. But like I say, there's this Joe Zaner in Northern California who'll mail you a kit tomorrow. <laughs> and he thinks she, sorry, um, uh, when I watched this fabulous 
Netflix documentary. It's called Unnatural Selection. Joe Zener was Josiah Zener and, and a man, and um, she has now transitioned, and she's Joe. She's a woman. But um, she thinks that uh, this technology should be in the hands of the people, not, not big pharma, and um, has very, I, I think, radical political view on it. But it's, you know, it's bodily autonomy. You want to experiment on yourself? Go ahead. Yeah, but it's so scary <laughs> because, like you said, unintended consequences, but also, like, obviously CRISPR kit, like, you know, could I do, could I, whatever. I mean, I would need something that would, by the way, I, you and I share bad knees. Like, could I improve my knee so I can play tennis with less pain? Like, is that, is CRISPR better than physical therapy? You know, I don't know, whatever it's. How do you know that that's not going to end up making cancer more prevalent or something else more prevalent? We just don't know what's going to happen after we start altering the delicate balance, which is an organism that only lasts like 75 years, maybe 80. I don't know. Well, that's another thing. I mean, you can also mess with, um, what is it called? Like, um, I mean, senescence, basically. You can mess with with cells and tell them not to get old and die. Right. Yeah, because we're barely figuring out why, right? If every cell in our bodies are less than seven years old, we don't even really know exactly why we age, right? Like, Yeah, I, well, be, because there's something in there, something in, you know, in the DNA that says, all right, knock it off now. Um, yeah, yeah. When you when you when the cell dies and another cell takes over, doing the same job in the same organism, it somehow knows to start making my the hair coming out of my face gray. Like yeah, I, mean, I and yet cancer cells are like, nope, just gonna keep going. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for so, real. I mean, maybe there's. Surely there's something to be learned from that, right? It's so much. It's it's endless. Lord knows. I mean, I actually am a big fan of sci-fi. Thank God sci-fi deals with this stuff because, yeah, there's no answers. We'll see what happens. This person with the kits, boy. But like when you order the kit, I don't know. I'm not going to ask about the kit. I was going to, I could, I could, we could talk about the kit for an hour. <laughs> I, I really recommend this Netflix series. It's only four. And at, when I got to the end of the fourth, I was like, what? What? Where's the next one? We need the next one. And it's from 2019. So it's probably already dated in, in a way. But unnatural selection. Um, and I, I hadn't seen it before I wrote the I almost picked film. up my phone to, to unlock it and type that in my shows to watch <laughs> list. I will. I'll remember. All right, well, wait, we got to get back to you. Or, so, so, so homologies was inspired, homologies was born of what you went through during COVID, but also just it's, but just you thinking as a creative person, like it wasn't directly about, it wasn't like, I'm going to write something about what it was like to go through COVID because it's not like that at all. It's actually. No, I didn't realize what I was writing about until I had written it. 
which I think happens to a lot of us, um, your writing teaches you something about what's going on internally that you didn't even realize or it helps you process it. Um, but I guess where I was going and why it ended up being science fiction was I thought, gosh, it just seems like um, there's this parental arms race. Like, you know, yeah, my my parents would yell at us if we got bad grades, but then it was sort of over. Like, if you didn't change your ways, then, okay, you like you didn't get into the best college and they'd be disappointed, but everyone would move on. It wasn't like they were marching into my room asking me if I'd studied for my SAT. I mean, I don't even think they bought me a book. And now, I mean, I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. I feel like, well, if these parents are doing it and I'm not hovering over my kids, well, then my kids will be at a disadvantage. And and now we've got the private tutors and we've got the resume building summer activities. And, and it just seemed like it was accelerating. And, and I started thinking like, where, where is this going to end? And what happens when you bring technology into the equation? Um, it could get even more out of hand. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is what, what locks us into your film, like right from the earliest scene, the earliest part of that scene is just looking at those parents and knowing the situation they're in, you know, like they've, like I identify with both of them in my own way and, and, and what their goals are. But then that is like, well, we kind of talked about not doing spoilers, <laughs> but it's obvious that the kid is in the film, right? So, yes, yeah. So when when we learn that the that the son is in the room, that's actually, I guess that's pretty much where Act Two begins, because it's sort of a three act short. Yeah. You, you you did us you did us the wonderful favor of telling a complete story because some some shorts are just one act and it's just like okay. But you you wrote a three act short, right? There's a yeah, beginning, it, middle, it and end. Yeah, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah, and uh, it's highly rewarding the whole way through. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, would well, you want to talk about how it all came together, or should we just? Uh... Yeah, so um, I had this script, and I, like I say, always had trouble doing anything on a small scale, but. I finally wrote this and I thought, well, this is great because it wouldn't cost that much to shoot. I could just, I would just need one location. And I belong to this wonderful writers and actors group called Safe House. Um, and I workshopped it there. And uh, the actor I cast as, uh, as the mom was Briarly, who became the director and she was uh, going off to do her master's, get her master's in directing in Spain. And she asked if she could have the script to, to direct. And I thought, you know, sort of thought about directing this myself, but 
I had other things going on and I knew if I didn't say yes, it would stay a file on my computer. And so I said, yes, you can do it. And uh, we used a lot of her uh, fellow students as crew. She was in um, at ESCAC in Terrassa, right outside of, of Barcelona. And so I flew over there and we co-produced it, shot it in three days, um, overcame <laughs> a lot of... Uh, of hiccups such as a, uh, I think there was a G7 conference in Madrid at the time and none of the packages were getting through. So like our costumes never showed up and we lost our set and we had to, we were literally out on the street Googling, you know, how to rent a movie location. (laughs) We found one. Um, But we had a wonderful cast, English speaking cast, um, you know, Spain has a very vibrant entertainment, uh, industry now. And, um, and yeah, shot it over three days and, um, it came out really well. I didn't know it was shot in Spain till now. Yeah. I, I don't think it ever came up at the festival in the Q&As or anything. Yeah, it's funny because we, we worried a lot about the accents because um, really only one person in the cast who's um, Julia Fossey, the Brit, is a, a native English speaker. Really? Yeah. But uh, people didn't. They didn't really bat an eye. I mean, occasionally they'll say, "Where's the, where was the dad from? You know, but. Um, I, I would have believed you if you said it was shot in Santa Monica. Really? With local actors. Absolutely. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. And who knows, maybe now next time I see it, which will probably be like the fourth or fifth time I see it, but. Next time I see it, I'll watch and I'll be like, maybe that's sort of like the futuristic otherworldly vibe of it, too, that they sound. But no, I just I thought. Well, that, uh, that's what Briarly, the director, kept saying when I was fretting about it. She's like, oh, it's the future. Global. Globalism. <laughs> it doesn't suck going over to Barcelona, even if you probably didn't get to enjoy much of the town that visit. I mean, no, I, pretty I wonderful loved place. It. I mean, I, I love all travel, but I prefer traveling with a purpose. And my, uh, my pandemic project was studying Spanish, so I had learned enough to be useful. And I could, you know, because I was also, I wore many hats. Um, I was also craft services. <laughs> In addition to being the writer and the producer and the script girl, um, I could order us lunch in Spanish. And I, was, you know, felt a great sense of accomplishment. Yeah, for sure. Well, that sounds really fun. To, to go over there and shoot in Barcelona. Wow. And then post, I guess Briarly handled post or? Uh, yeah, mostly. I mean, it was a collaboration and a lot of calling in favors. Um, you know, my friend from kindergarten did the effects and the titles. And um, we, we worked with um, an editor here at first and then another in Spain we had a composer from um, who's a British guy. Um, almost, almost all the work was done remotely. Um, yeah, I guess I assume that 
when I said she handled posts, I was thinking because she was in some director's program and would have access to all kinds of, you know. Uh, well, by that time she had graduated, so. Oh, got it. So, so no, it wasn't we were, like she got access to like the post sound and all that. No, we were through sort the, of through on the our program. Own. Oh, yeah. got it. I made an incorrect assumption. <laughs> right. So you you took care of it all as producer. Yeah, I mean, it was. I never aspired to produce. I prefer to spend my days writing, but uh, I learned so much. It was it was just a great education. It's it's amazing how much of your life an an eleven page script can take up, you know, over a year. Um, but it's amazing how much it can teach you too about every aspect of filmmaking. Yeah, and the obvious, yeah, you know, you know what I'm about to ask. Did it give you the? Did you get bitten by the producer bug? Like, are you thinking of producing more of your work? Or? Not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it scratched. It so now, yeah. Is there like I'm? If when if it came to turning homologies into a series, you would adapt it on the page and then have a TV producer take it from there. Yes. Yes. I mean. I, um, so you'd probably be a kick-ass showrunner because you're so detail-oriented. Well, I wouldn't turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you, you do extra. It seems like you do the research. You really look into things. Like that's you need someone who sees the whole picture. I think to to be a showrunner to run a series. Yeah, I think raising kids just um, gives you that skill set, whether you want it or not. It makes you a producer, kind of. Producing children is like producing film. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I if mean, you give a shit. Look, the, the first day your, your kid shows up in a uniform on free dress day, you realize you really have to have your act together. <laughs> That's funny. You're, you're both scarred for life by your inability to calendar or plan. Oh... Uh. Oh man, there's a. Uh, I'll tell you when we're not recording, but I always, I always have all the empathy in the world if, for parents who are hard on themselves, because <laughs> no one. It's just, it's just the, it's the impossible task. You Hard, can't definitely you, hardest job in the world. You can't get it all right. Yeah, and everyone walks around going, oh, "I suck." But those are just the people who care. It's the the people who don't think they suck are probably the shitty parents. Right. They probably think their kids suck. Yeah, they're like, I wish my kid... It's my kid's fault they're not. Come on. You should hit that forehand better. Not kidding. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Too Tennessee. Well, X, I'm, well, I'm really... That's that's very cool. And and you're just continuing post-homologies post-homology, is still on the festival circuit and kicking butt. Yes, I'm headed to Durango, Colorado, the Hollywood of the Rockies. For my next film festival. Is that what they call themselves or that's, that's like what, known? That's what they call themselves. They're also very proud that they have been selected as the worst dressed town in America. Nice. Yeah. They tell you that uh, for packing purposes. <laughs> it's just funny because uh, uh, there's, a, there's a festival or two in the Rocky Mountains that I won't mention, but there's some really huge famous ones that are also in the Rockies. But yeah, well, I can't think of the name. Can't think of it. <laughs> something with a ride in it or something with a dance in it. I don't know. 
But but the Rockies fell. That's cool. And then after uh, after that, we are playing at the Philip K. Dick Sci-Fi Festival in New York, which, um, I mean, I was really tickled to get into that because Blade Runner is on my list of my favorite movies. Oh, wonderful. Very cool. Well, hey, should we wrap it up so we can do the podcast about your favorites? All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready, too. Well, you want to share how people can... And by the way, hey, if you're listening to this, I hope you're listening, uh, Tatiana's about to say the social media and website you can do to go see homologies. It's, you know, may, if you live anywhere near Durango, Colorado, or the Philip K. Dick Festivals in New York, you say? In New York at the Museum of the Moving Image. And it's very, uh, very easy to remember, homologiesshortfilm.com and on Instagram, homologiesshortfilm. Exactly. Very cool. And I highly recommend it. It's a good, you know, the only thing I wish is my, my dream is someday that like Sherman Oaks Film Festival... And its sister festival, Film Vision Leg. If we could get like sponsors that allow us to like talk about each film for a half hour instead of like the ten to fifteen minutes you have at the theater, like I just think a film like Homologies would be so cool to watch with like you know a theater full of eighty people, and then just talk about it for an hour. I mean, as you can see, I like talking about movies. So I'm up for it. Right? Because it's endless. It's endless what you can talk about if a film is truly thought-provoking. So anyhow. All right. Tatiana shared where you should go. By the way, I'll make, I promise, there'll be clickable links, homologiesshortfilm.com and at homologiesshortfilm. And if you don't know how to spell homologies, you know, read a book, learn. But, and you didn't make that word up. That word existed. Um, that exists. Um, you hear, when you, like, if you read the, CRISPR book or listen to it on audio, uh, audio, it's, you'll hear a lot of homologous, this homologous, that, and it just means, um, shared traits basically. Yeah. Yeah. I admit I, when I watched the film, I, I, I looked it up. <laughs> yeah. Everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. But in five years, everyone will know that word. Oh yeah. Oh boy. They'll, they'll integrate AI. So you'll say to an AI thing, create a, CRISPR that will boost well anyway oh now you've just blown my mind right the marriage of AI the marriage of AI and CRISPR that is truly terrifying but how's who's not going to try that Google's already working on it all right I'll shut up (laughs) we've got the clickable links for homologies for Tatiana's work now I'm gonna spit out what I gotta do at the end which is thank you for listening to the discover indie film podcast If you want to learn more about this podcast or the TV series born from it, go to discoverindiefilm.com. And uh, if you want to watch the series, the first seven seasons are on Amazon Prime Video. So just type in in search on Amazon Prime Video, hopefully on a big TV. Don't watch movies on your phone. But I realize people watch movies on their phone. I just I'm too old to appreciate that. That's okay. Anyhow. Go to Amazon Prime Video, type in Discover Indie Film and Search and and enjoy. And if you want to follow it on social media, it's at DIF Wins for both the podcast and that TV series. Uh, I met Tatiana at the Sherman Oaks Film Festival. We hold that every November. I think it's going to be the week after Thanksgiving from now on because that really worked. It was really nice. It's nice because everyone's home after Thanksgiving. Yeah. And in the mood to watch movies, I think. Yes. We used to always be the weekend before Thanksgiving. 
Not as good because people are thinking about Thanksgiving. All right, I'll shut up. ShermanOaksFF.com and it's at ShermanOaksFF on social media. I mentioned there's a sister festival that's Film Invasion Los Angeles that we hold every June. That's FilmInvasionLA.com and it's at FilmInvasionLA on social media. The only difference, same team. The only difference between the two festivals is the name and that Film Invasion LA gets more international support and Sherman Oaks gets more local support. Just based on the names, I guess. And the last thing to mention is just go to watchtvhigh.com. It's a smart TV app that I started. So if you like indie film and vintage cinema, go for it. Go to watchtvhigh.com and check it out. I won't, I won't explain it any further than that. All right, Tatiana, thank you so much. Jeff, always a pleasure. Super pleasure. And now I'm about to stop and then I'll hit record again and you'll get to hear Tatiana answer those Discovery Indie Film 4 questions. Favorite films, underrated, overrated, lesser known. It's fun stuff. All right. Thank you, everybody. And goodbye. Oh, wait. And like and subscribe to everything. All right. Bye.